Good morning, and welcome this morning. We're glad you could all uh, get out there and brave the balmy temperatures this morning. We're glad you could join us this morning to worship the Lord. Uh, just a couple announcements this morning. Uh, the annual meeting is this evening at 5 here at the church. And uh, we're asking for people that would sign up on the hospitality schedule for the visiting pastors on the back desk. If you uh, feel called to do that. If you have any questions, if you know somebody that's done it, um, ask them how they did it. And maybe that will give you a little more willingness and confidence to do that. But we're, we are looking for volunteers to serve in that capacity. Are there any other announcements? Are there any other prayer requests that aren't already in the bulletin? I would ask uh, everyone to say a prayer for Lauren Blank. This past week he fell in his home and they suspect that he did have a stroke. But um, I helped him walk to his truck to get him to the hospital and so I don't know how bad it is but he has a couple other little nagging problems. Um, he's, I think, at uh, the Provena, or I think in Champaign, OSF, OSF. But please be in prayer for him as he's uh, healing in the hospital right now and for um, his family as they care for him. So um, he seems to be doing pretty good. So if that's it. Good morning, everyone. Let's worship together this morning with singing number 137 in the hymnal. 137. Oh, how I love Jesus. Sing verses 1, 2, and 4. Because 
turn back to number 256, Because He Lives, number 256.
and number 14 in the white book.
Thank you, Jennifer. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Lord, we come to you and we thank you for the privilege we have to come and worship you, our almighty God. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. We thank you for the sunshine. And, and uh, we thank you that we didn't get so much snow. And we can be together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this fellowship. Lord, I want to thank you for the examples that our elders have set. I know it would have been easy to stay home because it's cold. But we thank you for their example and showing their importance for worship and fellowship. As you watch over them as they go home. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to get together as a church this evening. We pray, Lord, for that meeting. We pray for wisdom and the decisions that have to be made. And we want to rejoice in the things that you've done for this church this past year. We just thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we have several requests before us. We want to pray for Callie this morning and the loss in her family of her uncle. We pray for a comfort for her and her family. Uh, we just ask that you'd be with her and Peyton as they uh, go through this time. Lord, we want to thank you for uh, Gene. Lord, he's not here this morning again. and uh, This is hard for him not to be able to come out. And Lord, we just thank you for his encouragement and his example all these years and we just ask that that you would be with them today as they as they uh, worship away from us lord we ask you would strengthen him and lord we'd ask for healing and we thank you for his promise to continue to pray for this church lord lord we uh I remember Lorne as he's in the hospital and we pray for his healing and then we want to also remember Suzanne Bruns who received bad news this week as, as she, they found a spot on her on her lung and Lord we pray for encouragement for them as they go through this time of discovery Lord we also want to remember Ron and, and Mary as they are unable to be with us. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage them and, and help them to uh, uh, be your servant in those places, Lord. Encourage them as they serve you there. Lord, now we come to you and we thank you for, for Paul and his willingness to come and share with us this morning. We pray that uh, uh, you would open our ears to hear what the Lord has laid on his heart, and we just uh, ask that you'd be with us through this time as we, as we hear your word, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Paul, would you come?
when Connie, my present wife, my only wife, <laughs> when Connie and I were engaged, we were invited to dinner with a couple with whom she went to church. We arrived at their condo at 25 years of age. I, I didn't know what a condo was. I had certainly never been inside a condo. When we arrived at their condo, I knew that I was in a world that I was not used to. The host and the hostess were dressed only like the people that I knew dressed when they went to funerals or weddings. There were these chafing dishes that had little cans of fire under them. Never seen that in my life. It was like Moses and the burning bush. I, I had no clue that such a product existed. When I sat at the dining room table, I was horrified because... I had never seen so much silverware, I, and I, I was clueless. I had no idea what... I learned a valuable lesson. If you ever get caught in those circumstances, always follow the lead of the host. <laughs> Whatever they do, you do. But I was absolutely clueless as to what to do. I had never seen food like that. There were these green beans. I remember them to this day. They were long and very skinny, and they had pieces of almond on them, and I had never in my life seen anything like that. Suddenly, as I sat there by the woman that I loved and who would become my wife, I will tell you that I had a deep feeling of shame come over me. I was a young man who had grown up in the woods of Louisiana. I had never circled in the arena of people who dress like that and talk like that and live like that. And for some reason, I felt exposed, uncouth, ignorant, ashamed. If being in the presence of Doug and Shirley Estes, who were a wonderful, kind, gracious Christian couple, if being in the presence of Doug and Shirley Estes caused me shame, what must it be like to stand in the presence of Jesus, who does not just hear my accent and my bad grammar and recognize I don't know what fork to pick up, but who sees my motivations and knows my heart's thoughts, 
and desires and longings and sees what you do not see and hears what you do not hear and knows what you do not know, what must it be like to be in his presence? We get a hint, don't we? Peter suddenly felt like the Lord could see right through him and he asked the Lord to go away. I'm a sinful man. Isaiah in that glorious vision said, what did he say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. What must it be to be in his presence? Shame is a powerful motivator. It can get in the way. It's like, I, I've, I, I'm, a gla- I, I'm grateful for glasses, but I hate wearing glasses. And they fog up, and they get in the way, and I can't see well, and they, I lose them, and I break them, and I just, I'm, but shame can be like, fogged up glasses where we cannot see clearly the Lord and his grace. Look in the book of Romans chapter 5. Paul addresses shame in a powerful and significant text. Romans chapter number 5. Paul wrote this letter, Rome, a cosmopolitan city, headquarters of power and thought, New York, city of its day. There was a group of folks who had come to faith in Christ and they gathered to sing 10,000 Reasons and because he lives and to pray for brothers and sisters who couldn't be with them and to talk about the good news of the gospel and talk about what their lives had been like that week. And They were Jews and Gentiles, and they were poor and rich, and they were slave and free, and they were men and women. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the good news. It's the hope. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Paul writes this glorious letter. It's one of the most powerful and significant letters I think they're all inspired by the Spirit of God, but Romans chapter number 8 is a place where we love to abide and dwell and walk uh, with the Lord through that text. And Paul writes this letter, and he begins it in chapters 1 through 4 by writing a painful but absolutely uh, significant and important truth where he comes finally to this glorious truth of justification. But to get there, he lays down the foundation of the reality of sin, how sin is real for everyone, the Jews, the Gentiles, those who think they've got it made, those who don't think they have it made, as far as the Lord is concerned, all have a problem, and the problem is sin. Any thought, act, desire, emotion, word, or deed writes Cornelius Plantinga, or its absence. Sin is not just doing something. Sin is sometimes not doing something. (laughs) That displeases God and deserves blame. The disposition even to commit sins. Lust, for example. 
displeases God and deserves blame. Sin refers to both act and disposition. It is culpable. We're, we're guilty of it. And it is a personal affront to a personal God. It destroys God's shalom. It gets in the way of the way things are supposed to be. And our world is infected by it. And we are infected by it. And when sin comes, it brings its kinfolks. And one of the kinfolks sin brings is shame. The man and the wife were created in the garden and they were both, it's a, you can say it in church, and they were both naked, but they were not what? Ashamed. I'm telling you, if we were all naked here today, I'd be ashamed. Hallelujah. The judgment, the judgment of the Lord. Because what I was going to say is, I'd be ashamed of you, not me. <laughs> I'd be ashamed. I don't know all that that means, but certainly it means there was nothing to hide. Complete transparency. Nothing in between, either them or the Lord. But when sin came, their eyes were opened in Genesis 3, and they <coughs> knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and themselves loin made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Amazing phrase. In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife did what? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out to them, Where are you? Now, did the Lord know where they were? Yes. <laughs> the way they looked at the world and the way they looked at each other and the way they looked at the Lord had shifted because of the introduction of sin and with that sin had come shame. It is one of the products. It's one of the offspring. It's one of the cousins <coughs> that come with sin. Well, Paul writes these words in Romans chapter number five. Therefore, he is shifting a bit his emphasis in this letter. Uh, the first four chapters deals with the topic of justification, which is a rich, glorious word that speaks of how we can be made right with God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified, made right with God by faith, by faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done in taking our sin upon himself, dying in our place, rising for life for us because we have been justified by faith. We now, Paul is saying, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through him, that is Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand. And thirdly, we rejoice in, and I think the emphasis of these five verses is found in the next word, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Now, there's a lot of stuff there. But let's look at these two doors, three doors we have to walk through to get at the heart of where I want to spend the majority of our time. One, Paul begins by saying, we have peace with God. And we think of that peace as being able to lay down at night and sleep. And the older I get, the harder that gets, uh, at least to sleep through the night. Uh, anxiety it comes to me quicker these days than it ever has. But there is this sense in which peace with God, peace from God, the propitiation, a biblical theological word that God's judgment is passed, God's anger over our sin is absorbed in Jesus, and now we have peace with him. We have been reconciled to him. He is, if I may be so bold, our friend. He is now our father. He is now our brother. We are reconciled to him. And we have both the peace of God and the peace with God. And we stand now, secondly, in grace, the unmerited favor of God and his sustaining power, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We stand in it. We live in it. We woke up in it. We abide in it through the day. We'll go to bed tonight. We will live in it. We'll die in it. We'll die sustained by it. We are kept by it. Glorious, matchless grace. Then the third thing Paul says, the hope in which we rejoice in ultimately to the glory of God. Hope is looking forward. Hope is anticipatory. Hope is thinking about the future. It is it is concerned with the future. It is looking to the future. And because of our relationship with Jesus, we now think about the future differently. And hope is very powerful. Uh, for a long time, I wore a device on my right wrist uh, called a Fitbit uh, to monitor. I don't know who in the world decided 10,000 steps is what you should do, what you must do. I, be I became almost addicted to that crazy thing because if I didn't have the 10,000 steps, it would bother me. I'd have to go, I literally at times would find myself walking around the inside of my house to get to 10,000 steps. And it monitored my heart, all of that stuff. I wonder if we put one of those monitors on us and monitored our hope. How, how healthy is our hope? Because we tend to say, well, hope isn't that significant. It's just, it's just, it's nice to have, but it's not important to have. When I, I bought my truck, my other truck my got old and, and was falling apart. And so we went and I kept looking and looking and looking. And I finally found this Toyota truck. I couldn't believe the deal I got on it. The salesman kept trying to talk me out of it. 
He said, I'm, I'm so sorry because this truck does not have technology. It did not even come with a clicker. I don't have a clicker. I have a key. That's how I unlock and lock my door. I only have a key. I love it. <laughs> I did not have to have. There are options that would have been nice. A clicker would be nice. Heated seats would be nice. There are options that would be nice, but they're not necessary. We look at hope and we say, oh, it's nice to have, but it's not necessary. But I don't believe if we think that way, we're thinking biblically. Hope is essential for us in the life that we now live. Don't minimize the significance of it. We are to be a people of hope. It is to make us attractive to the world around us, the gospel attractive to the world around us. The Lord Jesus, Paul wrote, the Lord Jesus loved us and gave us good hope through grace. In Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction and by steadfastness and the encouragement of the scriptures, now we might have Hope. Now, these folks are suffering, some of them significantly, some of them for their faith, some of them are suffering with cancer, some of them are suffering because their marriage has fallen apart, some of them are suffering because they are being rejected by their parents because of their faith in Jesus, and they're beginning to wonder, does that suffering mean that we are somehow, some way, failing as believers? And Paul says, no, let your hope be... Um, uh, informed by the reality that all of these things ultimately help produce hope because you discover in the midst of some of those worst circumstances the presence of grace of God that is sufficient to sustain you through those circumstances, which circumstances you never would have believed you to be in, able to endure with grace, but God who does not give you the grace ahead of time comes and meets you in the circumstances and sustains you through the circumstances, and Paul says that experience should give you stronger hope. So Paul says, don't let this difficulty bother you. Indeed, the opposite. It should be beneficial to your hope. Then he talks about shame, and I want to talk about shame for just a few minutes. Three things. Here, here, the, here are the points. Shame named, what is it? I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I don't have a counseling degree. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about Shame and guilt and embarrassment. What is it? Shame blamed. What does shame do? And then shame drained. What hope does to shame? Shame named. Shame blamed. And then shame, shame drained. I couldn't find a word that had an M in it. Named, blamed, drained. Shame named. It's not an uncommon word. It's found in both the Testaments of the Bible. Frequently, oh God, I am ashamed, Ezra said. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. It was, it was the state of, of presence before the Lord and other people. Often shame has to do with the essence of who we are as a person. There's shame sometimes offered up and and the scripture comes and says, you should be shamed. And Paul says, you should be ashamed. It's God's, are your bellies, Paul writes about. 
It's not guilt. Guilt can be objective and subjective. It can be felt and not felt. Some people are guilty and don't feel their guilt, and they should feel it. We may not sense it, but if we're outside of Christ, we are guilty before the Lord. Sometimes we do feel it. And again, sometimes we are guilty. David was told, you are the man. It deals with our actions and our behaviors. It's an awareness that we have failed a standard. And we have to be sure that our, our sensibilities, our conviction is informed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God so that the standards that we think about are truly biblical. I was reading about a young mother who felt guilty. She had four children on the age of six, and she couldn't keep her house clean. She felt guilty. Well, she came to my office as a pastor. I would say, dear, the fact that you are upright and vertical is amazing. I am a Christian. Christians don't fail. Christians don't fall. Christians don't stumble. Creates false guilt. Or if I am a growing Christian, I should be better and I shouldn't be struggling anymore. Oh, so let me get this straight. The more we grow, the less we need Jesus. Shame has to do with our identity. Sometimes it's foisted on us by other people. Sometimes it comes from our own hearts. I don't understand all the reasons. Ultimately, I think it's connected to sin, not necessarily our sin, just the very presence of sin in our world. When Paul used it in Romans 5, he used it opposite of hope. It is the uh, fear and pain of being unworthy of acceptance, the sense of failure in the eyes of others, especially in the eyes of the Lord. How does the Lord see us? How will he see us? How does he view us? Who are we in the presence of the Lord? And how can that erode our hope? What does it do to us, this shame blamed? And I think the enemy of our souls is more than happy to use it against us as the accuser of the brethren. Let me give you five ways. Number one, it can inhibit our ability to love others. Shame can, because it makes us introspective, thinking of ourselves and not liberated, freed up to love others. It can undermine our confidence in the gospel. Paul, in his last known letter, talking about himself, he's, he's getting older, he's getting along in the kingdom, says, I am the chief of sinners. But he didn't say that to his shame. He was saying that to the glory of the what? The gospel. (laughs) Shame can undermine our confidence in the gospel, that the Lord is able to do what he has said he is due. He is able to save to the, what's the King James Version say? He is able to save to the uttermost. That means all of it, the whole thing. Shame can lead us to despair and discouragement. It can impede our worship and our joy and our gratitude. It can sideline our service. It can corrode 
our very hope. What do we do about it? Paul tells us, he tells us that we have hope. Shame can't grow in the soil of hope, and that hope, Paul says, comes ultimately through our salvation, and that salvation helps us to know God loves us because the Spirit of God comes and and dwells us and pours that love into our lives. He takes up his residence within us, the person, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, not a power, not an it, not a feeling. He's not less than the Father. It's not like God is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and then the Spirit is a little less than the other two. That's not the biblical understanding of the Spirit of God. He is equally God, fully God, and he comes and has a relationship with a believer. He comes and indwells us. <laughs> he comes and fills us. And he comes, Paul says, in Romans chapter number 5, we have hope, and that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. He brings and makes a living reality of their personal relationship with Jesus. He transforms us, and he gives us certainty of being loved, redeemed, and adopted through Christ into the Father's family. That is through his internal witness, Romans chapter number 8, his spirit bears witness with our spirit, and it is the external testimony of the witness to the truth of his word. And Paul says the Spirit of God comes and he pours out that love. He doesn't come. um, When Connie and I were first um, pastoring, uh, we got invited. We were so grateful. We got invited to the Gables. Both of them are with Jesus now. Arjo and Leola. Love them, Arjo and Leola. And we got invited to their home with some other folks for, for lunch on a Sunday, and um, the house smells so good, and, and we looked, and Leola had been over to Keokuk, Iowa, uh, to the KFC there, and had bought a bucket of chicken. I love chicken, fried chicken, uh, the, the Colonel's fried chicken. And so Leola set that bucket down, and you know, the smells just kind of wafting, and uh, um, Argyle, praise and thanks the Lord for it, and Leola takes that top off that bucket of chicken, and then she gets a pair of tongs, and she reaches in that bucket, and she goes around the table, and she says, here's your piece, here's your piece, here's your piece, here's your piece, then she puts the lid on it and says, now the rest of it is for Argel and I to eat on through the rest of the week. And I wanted to say, now wait a minute. You gave me a wing. That is not enough chicken. God comes and he doesn't just give us a wing. The scripture says he pours, he pours. And the word literally means he gushes, he pours into us this reality of God's love for us. I think it was Vance Havner, I heard him say, if you're stingy, you did not get it from God. 
God pours the Spirit into our lives, and in that reality comes the reality of His deep, glorious love for us. Why do we love that story in Luke 15? Why do we love that story? Those, there are three stories there, but one of them, we just absolutely love it. Why do we love it? That boy, a rebel at heart, tired of living at home, thinking he knew better, wanting to experience what he thought would bring him freedom and happiness and joy, tells his father, give me what's mine, I'm leaving. And he does. And he goes out and he wastes his life in prodigality. That's what the word's about. It's about the son. <laughs> just riotous living. He just, he wastes his life and he wastes his money and he wakes up by the grace of God. Not everybody does. And he wakes up by the grace of God and he says, the servants in my father's house do better. They do better than I do. And he says, I'm going to rise up. And he begins to practice what he's going to say to the father. And the glory, I think this story is written because of the older brother, actually, because that was the people Jesus was dealing with when he was told this glorious story as people like the older brother. But in the midst of describing them, he tells this glorious story. And I think the person who's really at the center of the story is not the son that leaves or the son that stays, but it's the heart of the father who runs and greets his son and lavishes. Think of the shame the son has now brought to his life and to the name of his father. And his father says, this my son who is dead is back from the dead. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. And what appears to be a courtroom scene with a high priest, Joshua, representing God's people. And Zechariah 3 stands before the angel of the Lord, and he is clothed in what kind of garments? Filthy garments. And the enemy stands ready to accuse him. But the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan, declaring he is taking away Joshua's filthy garments and clothing him with pure clothes. In the most shameful place, Joshua found relief. Just like Adam and Eve, God clothed them as well. Why is that? In Philippians chapter number 2, Here's the reality of our shame. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied it himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Nothing was in 
Jesus' day more shameful than to be nailed to a Roman cross, naked, exposed, with your crimes posted above your head. Jesus died to take our shame. Bearing the shame, Paul says. So that now in 1 John 2, 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in what? Shame at his coming. I used to hear some dear saints say, oh, when I was a teenager, I was scared to death. I went to a movie and I thought, boy, I hope Jesus doesn't come back and catch me in this theater. If that is the worst Jesus catches you in, because I've done a lot worse things than that. I've thought things. I've been motivated by things. I've longed for things. Shameful things. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? A few things. One or two things. All things. Because God is not stingy. And the blood of Christ is sufficient. And it removes our shame so that when we stand in his glorious presence, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we can actually hear those words from him which are based on his gospel and grace. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a dinner. And you can have all the chicken you want. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have removed from us in Jesus our shame. No one knows our hearts better. No one knows our thoughts better. No one knows our motives better. No one knows our longings better. And it is absolutely true. You are work in our lives, transforming us and liberating us from the power of sin, we look forward to that great and glorious day when finally we'll be free from the presence of sin. But until then, I pray that you would help us to live in the power of the gospel so that our hope may flourish. And in that flourishing hope, we may truly have peace and it will motivate us to follow and love Jesus and it will demonstrate to a lost and dying world the freedom that they themselves can find and only find in Jesus. Father, we have an enemy who loves to come along with our past and constantly confront us and tell us about all of that stuff, all of those actions, all of those things we have done or not done, and condemn us and bring us into a dark place. But we rejoice that you're victorious over him and the gospel is victorious over him and that we stand in Jesus and him alone. We look forward to that day when you're going to come back and make things right. We look forward to that great and glorious day of finally seeing Jesus face to face. That is our hope. In his name we pray.
is all the world to me. Let's stand and sing that together. Verses 1, 2, and 3. And then Pastor Paul will give us the benediction. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. With him I would fall. When I am sad to him I go. May these verses be sustaining grace to you this week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. It's according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's being kept in heaven for you who by God's very power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in this last time. We have a living, glorious hope in Jesus. You are dismissed.